For years, there has been a debate about whether video games are the next great learning tool or just gateways to desensitization due to violence and a lack of face-to-face -face interaction. The debate rages on, but regardless of the long-term side effects of video games, there are scenarios where they are being put to use in practical ways as it relates to military training. The idea of training the soldiers using computer games was like, there's no way. A computer game can't train my guys how to shoot. You have to go out into the mud and do it for real. And while there's some truth there, what we offered was an accelerator for decision-making processes. Mark Chelko had been serving in the military for 13 years when he recognized the potential that computer-based simulation tactics could have in the military. As the CTO and director of Bohemia Simulations, Mark is now turning the potential into something practical. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Mark breaks down the difference between traditional consumer-based video games and Bohemia's simulation device. Plus, he explains how the company scaled despite having a limited customer base. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have Mark Chulko. He is the advisor of the board, the former CTO and director at Bohemia Interactive Simulations. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Albert. All right, right out the gate. What is Bohemia Interactive Simulations? We've now read about what you do. It is ultra fascinating. Describe what it is that that company does. So it's actually probably not that easy to describe in a single sentence. I mean, essentially, Bohemia Interactive, we are using or we're doing tactical training for the military based on a computer game. <laughs> Does that yeah. answer your question? It does. <laughs> so to me, it's like the world of simulations. Um, you know, it's for the military. So talk about some of the things you've been asked to simulate. Oh, it's really, I mean, as we often describe it, um, our products, who are, uh, which are called uh, VBS, Virtual Battle Space, um, is essentially the PowerPoint of simulation. So when I talk about training, it's not that we are creating the training itself. We're giving our customers a tool to create training on their side. So what we need to produce is an open world where you have all the assets like vehicles, you can be an individual, you can be a helicopter pilot, you can be in a plane, everything you can imagine down to UGVs, uh, which are unmanned vehicles and drones that need to be accessible to the customers so they build their scenarios for training. It's hard for me to describe what it is to our listeners without using tools that are more commonly popular. I don't know if you're familiar with consumer game, but like Epic Games has built the Unreal Engine and other companies can build their games on Unreal or, you know, Apple and Google have developed their languages so that other companies can build applications for their phones. Is that what Bohemia is doing? And, and by the way, I call it Bohemia for sure, but you guys have a shortcut name for it. What do you guys call it? It's BI Sim. BI Sim, yeah. So yeah. when it comes to BI Sim, is that what you guys are doing? You're building simulation tools capable of like, so that the militaries that use this tool can then build their interactions on top of it to re-simulate what it is that they want to train and practice on. In principle, the comparison to something like Unreal is pretty good. However, we do a lot more. So we do have like a game engine as well. 
but we really need all of the UI, for example, to, to expose the functionality to someone uh, who, who sits in what they often call battle sim centers, so kind of like the simulation areas from the military. And you have administrators there, and they obviously they are not developers. So kind of giving them an Unreal Engine wouldn't really uh, go very far. I mean, some of them are probably pretty smart as well, yeah. but it would take a long time. So you, so you need to give them all the tooling, all the content to actually put together very quickly different training scenarios. An important part of training is something we call AAR, which is after action review. Mm -hmm. It's basically the debriefing. And I think that's the big difference to a normal computer game where you just kind of, you do have your gaming session, you have fun, and then uh, you turn it off afterwards. Uh, the part of simulation and training, uh, kind of when you end your mission, that's where the actual kind of learning curve begins. When you actually do the AAR, when you kind of look at the whole scenario, you can put yourself into the perspective of even the enemies, or you can, you can listen to all the radio communication that happened. And that's where the learning actually happens. One aspect is the decision-making during the mission. But the other part is really when you replay, when you discuss what was the decision, what were all the factors that someone kind of knew about at a certain point of time. And uh, that's the part where the learning uh, is really valuable. So this is really fascinating stuff. Uh, also, because we were reading a little and doing a little homework on your personal career, how you got here. And it said that we, we read a little bit about you that said you were serving in the German military for 13 years. You studied electrical engineering and you received your PhD in applied plasma physics. None of those things say computer programming. Uh, talk about how that, how you ended up becoming a programmer at BISIM with Operation Flashpoint. Kind of walk us through how this all happened, unfolded for you. Yeah, so I think I was always, as long as I can remember, I was sort of fascinated by technology. So kind of when I was small, uh, kind of I was the one reading all the technical manuals in the family. So kind of I remember uh, us having the first video recorder, like a VHS system, and kind of my parents didn't know how to program, but they wanted to record something. So they would always come to me. And um, I think it was 11 or 12 years old when I had my first computer, like a Commodore 128. I guess a lot of people don't even know what this is anymore. <laughs> um, so, and obviously there was no internet to learn how you program or how you do anything with it. So I, I remember going to my first basic learning course in like a community college. And I was there uh, barely reaching the keyboard when uh, all of the rest of the people were adults. Uh, so that was How old an were interesting you? experience. Well, about kind of 10 or 11, but I was rather small. So kind of- So you're uh, a small 10-year-old yeah, kid at community college, 18-year-old to 20-year-old kids in your class, and you're just- like you described, reaching up over the keyboard, like, oh, I'm going to program this. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was great fun. And on the other hand, I always kind of, um, I guess it comes with computers, loved uh, playing computer games. Probably uh, my parents didn't like this too much. The typical sentence of, you know, you shall go out more and don't play so many computer games. But I guess it turned out that it was quite valuable for my job later on. That's right. So then you ended up serving the German military while studying electrical engineering. Talk about that. That path, because electrical engineering, you know, obviously you would, uh, I would assume you'd be making machines, you know, working on things like that. And then I don't even understand your PhD, applied plasma physics. That sounds like blowing stuff up. I'm not sure. <laughs> but walk me well, through that I, part I, of your life. The, the title itself is probably a little bit more sophisticated. I mean, there's different parts. I, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't call myself like a plasma physicist. Uh, I think that would be wrong. But kind of there, there's certain devices for, for applied 
plasma techniques uh, w- which are used to to coat materials with ceramics and mm-hmm. it's a whole process of, of very different to creating computer games or simulation but um, as part of this it was always um, important to do actual simulation to write code to to do di- diagnostics so I always uh, had a big part of programming as part of my role during my studies and, and also during my PhD. Gotcha. So you kind of saw the need. Uh, talk a little bit about how how that ultimately ended up you joining BISIM. Was the company already making these types of simulations at that time? Were you kind of seeing from your time in the military, like, hey, these if we could simulate this more, it'd be more effective, it'd be easier to train, it, we, we wouldn't be so costly? Because obviously, if you're running live simulations with like the vehicles, the cost to run those vehicles is is extraordinarily high. <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, uh, yeah, it would be great to to tell a story how I all planned this and everything, but uh, <laughs> as often in life, it, it was pure coincidence. So I love to play computer games, and uh, something new came out called Operation Flashpoint. Back then, all of the games were quite sort of mission kind of streamed. I remember something like Quake, where you just flow a certain path and you follow it, and um, Essentially, you were very limited. And then this new game came out, Operation Flashpoint, where even the demo blew everyone away in terms of having the freedom to go anywhere, to kind of go into any vehicle, to go into any helicopter. And I think this is a little bit where it started, hey, well, wouldn't that be something for the military? Because at the time, um, really, you had simulators for planes and for ships, so everything that's big and expensive. But also during this time, it was the time of the Iraq war, so kind of mid-2000, where a lot of the casualties were actually on the infantry side and kind of people realized that there's not really a great training potential. And then some people said, well, we've got these computer games that my kids are playing. Can we use this somehow? (laughs) Yeah, Call of Duty. I mean, there's a whole aspect of this we can talk about kind of how how militaries portrayed, I guess, in the public and and in in video games and and movies. Um, But that's almost kind of a different story there. So, so my connection really was through the computer game. And, and since I did a lot of programming, I did a bit of reverse engineering of file formats and created some editors for this game because it just fascinated me. So there was this big community of modders who would do changes to the games because the whole way the game was laid out was very flexible. You could create new content. You could create new terrain. You can kind of do a lot of things that had a very rich scripting language. So this, this big ecosystem of people modifying the game and creating their own packages was very big. So I started creating some tools. And this is how I got connected to Peter Morrison, which, interesting enough, was like a signals officer in the Australian Defense Force in Australia. So we connected. We sort of met over the internet, as you would say nowadays. Uh, Back then, I think it was ICQ, if anyone still remembers that little tool. Yeah, that little chat Um, tool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is how it started. And I mean, at, at some point he asked, well, what do you think about coming to Australia? And luckily my back then girlfriend, now wife said, sure, let's go. And uh, I guess that was the point of saying, let's, let's do this. So I'll, I'll first attack this from the perspective of someone who knows nothing, right? And then you can correct me. <laughs> That'll be perfect. But you know, I would imagine if, you know, the, what makes a, a true military simulation actually, you know, useful is programming in all the variables that are the constraints of, let's say, a vehicle. For example, if you tell me that there's a tank, right, then you know you have to program in its range. You have to live it, move it in a world that has. So if you say, like, on one 
full fuel tank. It can only travel so many kilometers. You have to hard program that in. You have to program its constraints, its ability to climb grades, uh, descent speed, ascent speed. How many people can it carry? How many true weapons can it carry? How much armor can it carry? Like, well, what can it withstand? You'd have to program in. Like, we know that it can take a blast that, you know, X, your people inside are okay at Y. These people are going to die. And like all these factors come in so that there's just constant constraints on the vehicle so that it's as truly live as possible. I'm assuming that's what it takes. Is that what you were building in this world? Like these little mods you mentioned, were you building these little mods that piqued their attention or how did it come about where they're like, oh, this guy, this guy might be the guy. So when I talked about that kind of Operation Flashpoint was very different, uh, it was not only in the area that it was very open, it also tried to be extremely realistic. So kind of this is where some some critics said, well, this is the most boring game because I remember this mission, steal the car, and you literally kind of, you walk for 10 minutes, you steal the car, not try to be shot, and kind of you drive the car off for 10 minutes. So people is like, what's the fun in that? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think the point was, it was always geared towards kind of a bit of military nerds or people who like the realism. Mm-hmm. So it would also be, you wouldn't have your traditional sort of health bar yeah. if you would just go in Rambo style into a mission and well, if you're shot, you're yeah. dead. So kind of- what, You only get one life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then you have to walk for 20 minutes again. So kind of, <laughs> that was the concept of the game. And um, so from the very beginning, it was very realistic. And on the other side, it's also kind of all the parameters when you mentioned kind of parameters of tanks and kind of vehicles were written into a config database. So nothing was actually hard coded. Uh, as as part of the game itself, and this this made it so rich for modders to to take this, put in their own values, uh, added additional scripting um, and 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 richness. So, um, what did I mainly do at the time? I I created like an animation tool. I created like a terrain editing tool, so you can kind of create new animations or you can create new uh, terrain. There was one part that was a little bit kind of yeah, discussed in the community. I created a tool that would, that there was a concept of what's called binarizing models, um, which, which means kind of you, you have it in a raw format and something like 3D Studio Max, and then you would kind of convert it to the game format and it comes out at this kind of object code almost. And uh, I was creating a tool that kind of reverses that process so people could kind of open up community content, kind of potentially modify it and the there was a big bit of a dispute if this is something you should you should have available or if someone's stealing IP. So kind of a, it was an interesting journey and kind of the discussions that happened around that. And when you were building these mods, were you were you working in the military still? Were you independent and a civilian at this time? What were you doing? What were you doing in addition to making these mods? So I, I was basically still at university. So kind of during the day I was in lap, and then kind of at night uh, I would kind of program. There you go. And so now people are, so you're building these mods, you got communities already talking about what you're shipping. And then someone reaches out to you and says, Hey, what are you up to through ICQ? <laughs> and, offered, More or less. More and, or less. and offered you a gig. Yeah. So, so the very first thing when, when VBS one started, they didn't have what I previously mentioned, like this after action review tool. So I was actually creating a first tool that would just during the mission record everything that's happening and uh, replay it in 3D. So that was probably my first real engagement uh, be- before actually moving over for for the company back then. Yeah. So you packed up. Did you actually finish school or did you did you just go to start working? 
Well, actually, kind of, I didn't entirely finish my PhD. I kind of went back a year later to right. kind of sort of do my final kind of uh, get the doctorate. Yeah, I, I was done kind of with the military service and kind of everything there. So you walk in through the doors first day. You're now in Australia. Is this the would this was this the first time in your life you had lived uh, internationally? Uh, no, actually, my 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 dad uh, used to be an airline pilot, so I, I traveled the world quite a bit. Uh, kind of him taking me. Uh, to a lot of places. So um, it wasn't the first time. I also kind of did a vacation uh, kind of half a year before in Australia to just sort of, I guess, check it out or something. Okay. Um, to, to actually kind of see a little bit of the place uh, be- before making the final decision. But um, yeah, it was exciting because essentially at the start of what was still called Bohemia Interactive Australia back then, uh, it, it was literally um, a shed uh, behind a farm. So it's, it, it was what you imagine for a startup, and including surfing at lunchtime, but then working at 2, 2 a.m. in the morning. So. <laughs> and when you walked in that first day, what were you thinking? If, that's a, if it's a shed, if it's just a shed where everyone's surfing at lunch, we're like, I've made a mistake. We're like, oh, this is going to be great. No, I thought this is cool. This is, <laughs> this is a change. I mean, coming from the military to a shed, and surfing during lunchtime is quite a difference. <laughs> so we'll talk about a little bit about what you guys built. Uh, you know, eventually your career takes you to the CTO of the co- company. But, you know, when you're first starting out, a lot of times people do like, a, let's say, career transformative or groundbreaking. Some, they do something groundbreaking where it really, really helps the company. You know, you described this shed. Um, we didn't know that you got to over 100 developers under your like at, at one point, but talk about how, what were you guys working on at the time and what was maybe the groundbreaking thing where some, you started getting customers really starting to notice like, wow, these, these guys, BI Sim has some serious technology that can really help us uh, prepare. Yeah. So in the military sector, there's kind of two big conferences uh, per year. I mean, there's many more conferences, but kind of, so the main simulation conferences like IITSEC in Orlando and ITEC, uh, which is usually traveling around Europe. So um, I think initially our presence at these conferences was noted. We, we just had this little tiny stand, but people would come up and kind of um, the, the graphics compared to all the other simulation systems were much nicer because it, it came from the video game industry. And then people would come up and say, yeah, but, but can you also change time of day? Yep, we can. Can you also kind of go to this place? So kind of they would ask all these questions that were tif- typically difficult for some of them. But uh, ha- having this open world game, uh, we were able to answer them quite quickly. So we made these connections and had these individual champions in various countries. So kind of from the beginning, we were actually pretty good at getting some funding from customers to say, yeah, we, we definitely want to give this a try and, and also fund new, new technologies and new features in the software. Yeah. And what were some of the, you know, you mentioned some of the ability to adapt and change worlds. You mentioned earlier that this is exactly what the the crux of it was, which is this ability to basically model what you need to model. So you got different, different countries now or different militaries now looking at you like, oh, this is, this is something that we can absolutely use to train. Now, what were you thinking at the time? Like now there's like a wave of people very interested. you mentioned before, like checks started coming into the door, your company's growing. Were you thinking like, oh man, like we're going to be we're going to be in trouble or did you ever think like you would have to only serve one country or I don't know, like how, how did that start developing? Because if you got a lot of interest from a lot of different places, it sounds like pretty quickly. Well, I mean, there was initially, there was interest, but there was also kind of a big barrier because you can imagine some, some majors or lieutenant colonels, like the idea of training their soldiers using computer games was like, 
there's no way yeah. like like a computer game can't train my guys how to shoot uh, kind of you have to go out into the mud and and do it for real and, and while there's some truth there like what we offered was like an accelerator for decision making processes mm-hmm. so so really Entering this market was actually quite difficult at the beginning because for people who attended these conferences, a simulator was like, okay, I've got a plane and I've got a big dome and I've got a cockpit and a lot of expensive hardware. This is what a simulator is. Yeah. And, and we're coming up as like, no, no, all you need is a keyboard, mouse and monitor and you can train your soldiers doing this. What do you mean? You're not going out in the field and kind of how can this help them? And so kind of there was definitely a big barrier at the beginning. But once it gained some tractions and first customers adopted it and there was good results and then people obviously did studies. uh, I mean, we're definitely we're not replacing life training. I mean, that's not the goal. Right. But um, in in training and learning, it's all about kind of repetition and putting you in, in similar but slightly different scenarios. And if, if you do something like convoy training, of course, you can do it for real, but you need kind of five Humvees and uh, you, you need the area and you need some, some people who play uh, up for uh, kind of enemies or kind of people who ambush your, uh, your convoy. And it obviously takes a lot of time. So kind of you can maybe do like two, three runs per day or something. Sure. In simulation, you just kind of click and say, we do this again, or we pause here and we continue or kind of we rewind. So kind of the, the, the cycles of iterations are much quicker and kind of that, that's what kind of was the actual game changer. What was that first piece of feedback like? I'm assuming when, you, when you're programming such a thing, I mean, everyone knows in developing new technology that it's not perfect. It's not a perfect path to success, right? There must have been something where you guys were developing where, where your customer came back and was like, hey, Mark. This isn't realistic at all. We tried this and then we, this failed miserably. You know, it feels like such high stakes because there's such limited customer base. It feels like there's limited customer base. So in the sense that things have to go really, really right. Talk about that pressure, I guess, or, or did you not feel like you had any pressure? Did you always feel like you, we, whatever the feedback was like, Hey, we can solve that problem. Oh, it's definitely. I, I mean, there's always a bit of roller coaster ride. Uh, luckily, the brain uh, typically just lets you remember the good pieces. Uh, <laughs> it's but, weird how the brain um, does that, right? Like it'll yeah, take the yeah, bad times and turn them into also, good times. I think, beneficial, yeah. <laughs> but uh, we definitely. I, I, I mean, there's a few items in our company when I talk to kind of older developers and 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 talk about hasty deployments. Uh, there's certain aspects of, of, of military training where we literally get a call and, and kind of, hey, hey guys, I, I need to simulate this tomorrow. I need to present it to some kind of general or something. And we would work all night to kind of build a scenario uh, that, that kind of does that. And obviously, we only get very little requirements um, of what exactly needs to be built. But in this context, I think it was very beneficial that A, myself and Pete had this military background. So it, it wasn't quite a layer of, well, here comes a customer I don't understand in depth. It was kind of uh, since we went through the whole officer training yeah. uh, on, on both sides, kind of very different nations, um, we had a very good understanding of how to develop scenarios and, and, and what's actually needed. There you go. And you know, you kind of had that advantage, like you mentioned, since you had some experience, at least some domains experience into what these uh, your customers were asking for. When it came to developing this technology and solutions, though, I mean, it happens to everybody, right? Where you get hit with a request that you're just like, oh, I don't really know how to do that. <laughs> Did that ever happen to you? <laughs> well, the funny thing is sometimes it's, I, I remember the famous, like, we need to build a snake robot. 
Right. Hey, what? <laughs> it's like uh, this was uh, someone had this idea in the um, I think Australian Defence Force um, to have essentially a sort of snake-like robot mm -hmm. that would have little C4 explosives that it would just keep dropping as it moves along. So kind of, I don't know where this idea came from, but essentially they explain kind of, we need a snake robot that drops explosives and uh, kind of, uh, they weren't too specific about this, but, but these are these kind of, well, it's also fun moments, I guess, um, where you uh, develop this completely weird concept. But this is where simulation is great as well, because yeah. you can build something that literally doesn't exist in the real world. And it's almost like, let's try out if this can work. But now you have all these details of actually kind of, we didn't have any snake simulation or something. And now we had to figure out how this moves over the ground and things like this. You know, you've, you've built all these simulations. Most of them, it sounds like they're accessed through a uh, computer, computer, like you mentioned before, a computer screen and a mouse and a keyboard. But we've also seen the rise of augmented reality, virtual reality technologies coming forward. How is that impacting the world of simulations? I'm curious what your perspective is on how AR, VR is going to play an impact in this domain going forward. And what, what, do, you, what do you foresee? Yeah, so I, I mean, the concept of AR and VR is 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 it's been around quite a while yep. in the military. I mean, you, you've got kind of fighter pilots, you've, you've got like hat systems and helmets that display kind of certain symbology um, for for quite a while. VR was also on these conferences quite often, but I think it really took uh, sort of uh, Facebook or kind of the various other companies to take this into the consumer market to to really get the latency down because kind of this motion sickness was always a big deal. Yeah. But now uh, there's definitely more adaption. There's still the problem about resolution itself. Um, so I think for the entertainment field, uh, it is great uh, because it's all about kind of moving around and having, having fun games to play with. But um, on the military side, there's a lot of detail. So if you, if, if you want to train your uh, helicopter pilot uh, and he's wearing a VR, he needs to be able to kind of read symbology on the display. He needs to be able to interact. So kind of, I think especially the interaction part is quite tricky still in VR when it's about kind of, I need to type in some coordinates or something. Uh, so I think these are areas that, that still need to be further improved, but it's, it's definitely on the uprise. There is an interesting aspect as well when taking something, making it more real doesn't necessarily mean you make the training better. Really? Because to a degree, it's also distracting to our brain. So kind of, it is important to, to immerse someone in the simulation itself so they sort of feel they are there. But if you put like too much detail there, and there's some research around this, uh, it's kind of the brain picks up things that are wrong even more easily. So kind of the very early on simulators had just some kind of vector graphics and things, and people would be able to abstract this. Okay, this means like the real world. And then the graphics got better and better, and now you've got amazing kind of indistinguishable uh, photorealistic. But now, since everything is so realistic, the brain picks up little things in animation. Well, this doesn't look right. It's a kind of, it, it suddenly triggers you in areas that distract you actually from training. So that's, it's probably more an entire research site uh, that's quite interesting, but sort of the lessons learned are a little bit blurred by keeping your brain so busy about like all this amazing world that's around you, not leaving any capacity for actually training you what it's supposed to do. That is fascinating. I wonder if that has anything to do with like natural flight or fight instincts that we have, right? Because like, if you think about where I'm thinking back to when we were 
basically prey. Like before humans invented you know, spears and tools, we were probably running around like trying not to get eaten all the time. You would probably be looking for things that are just a little abnormal, right? Because most animals, you know, even if they have shaded patterns to design, you know, to hide themselves, camouflage, there's going to be something off, right? There's something off in that world. And it's like your eyes should, if you're going to survive, you have to uh, spot the abnormalities. It's interesting that that is, I didn't ever even thought about that, that in a very, very well simulated VR, AR world, you will spend more time looking for things that are wrong than whatever it is you're supposed to think about. Yeah. But then again, there's probably some scientists who deal with this uh, kind of don't take me as <laughs> like, this is exactly as it is, but we're observing, um, yeah, some of these. Well, I've, I've also noticed whenever I put on a pair of VR goggles and people are telling me, so it's supposed to make you feel like you're there. I actually don't ever feel like I'm there because I don't quite see what I would normally see in real life. Like per- peripheral vision is a great example. Like the periphery. So for example, if, do you do any outdoor activities? Like you ski, yeah, yeah. you mentioned surfing yeah, before, right? Yeah, surfing, skiing, scuba diving. I, I tried almost every sport, I guess. Yeah. Not synchronous swimming. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, like if no matter what someone says for VR, put it on. If they say it's surfing, it's like it that doesn't look right. It, it, it Something's off about it. So it's pretty fascinating that that's, that's part of the – it hinders learning. And I think this is also an area where kind of – the really good VR games is where they just abstract it completely. So it's, it's not trying to replicate the real world. It's more like, um, I guess there's, there's games like Blaston on, on the Quest 2, where you're on this platform and you've got all kinds of different weapons and you can, it's all sort of clearly fictional because obviously you're never kind of, kind of hovering uh, sure. somewhere in space. And then uh, you, you can fight your opponent by using different weapons and have to move around. And, and so kind of, if the setting is out of what you experience normally, then it seems like the brain accepts it a lot more and a lot easier to just say, oh, yeah, that's what it is. Well, I've never seen something like this, but let's go for it. How, you know, I want to also ask you more questions about the physical side, because you mentioned you mentioned this a couple of times now. Uh, you mentioned before that when you first introduced this, you know, BI SIM technology that generals were saying, hey, you can't actually teach a person to shoot or do things without being in the muck or the mud. You mentioned earlier that if you are too sophisticated in VR or the VR doesn't quite like, for example, typing in coordinates, you mentioned it doesn't quite make you better at it. When it comes to like physical skills, you mentioned that the Sims are very good for helping people with decision making process. Like, how would I uh, approach this problem? Do you see a place where it's going to help people with physical, like actually doing things? Uh, or do you think it's still going to be mostly in the decision realm? Uh, I'm just curious in your opinion, because I, I got asked this a question recently where they said everything's going to be virtualized. And I said, no, I don't think so. Because uh, I'm a, for example, I have a couple hobbies that I, I truly believe you cannot teach without actually doing it. Right. Sports being one of them, but like guitar, music is another. I just don't think you can learn with simulation, like you have to hold a guitar. You have to feel the good strings on your finger to know how to play. Like you couldn't simulate that and then all of a sudden be good at it. That's just my opinion, but I'm curious where your perspective is on learning physical skills. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely a fascinating topic. I mean, there's also a lot of development. I, I had some of the kind of, there's, for example, haptics that try to develop this amazing glove where you have tactile feedback and temperature feedback and everything, but they're all not quite there yet. Yeah. Uh, however, I'm not saying that maybe in a few years time, there might be some devices or maybe neural link 
uh, is actually kind of just overriding everything that's in your brain and just <laughs> makes you believe it's all real. Um, <laughs> so from that perspective, uh, I think as of now, uh, something like virtual reality, I mean, you can, you can, get a great workout on, on something like thrill to fight where, which is like a boxing game. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's probably kind of you, you in a fitness studio probably can't sweat as much as, as kind of playing this game. Uh, but I, I would agree with you that kind of really learning a physical skill through VR um, at this stage is probably quite difficult. Yeah. Oh, Mark, man, it's been awesome talking to you. Some of the, some of the perspectives you have is truly interesting and your experience is pretty fascinating. But right now, it's time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. And Mark, this is where we ask you questions outside of BI Sim, outside of the world, so that our customers, our listeners can get to know you better on a personal level. You ready? Go for it. All right, Mark. It sounds like you still game. Do you still play games? From time to time with my kids, like Nintendo Switch, so far I can still beat them sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> getting worse <laughs> what's your perspective on the modern game the modern game well i think there's not a single game anymore it's like or can you rephrase what do you mean by a modern game well like, modern gaming in general well, i'll tell you mine because you mentioned that like the first thing i noticed when i when i held my son's xbox controller was like i can't deal with all these buttons <laughs> i'm used to nintendo original nintendo where it's an a b button and a, a directional pad now we got you know four buttons here two on the top of each finger i got rotators here and then i got a directional pad i'm like do i have to use all of these like, they're like, yeah, every single one does something. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I know. Yeah, definitely the motor skills of the next generation is, is kind of quite admirable, at least kind of the hand motor skills, I guess. There's probably <laughs> other motor skills where they're not as evolved. Um, yeah, yeah, like input devices are probably its own topic. But like in computer games, I really love uh, when there's when someone just has a complete new game idea. So kind of uh, recently kind of downloaded this, uh, I think it was Good Work or something. And it basically just puts you in a office scenario and you have to fulfill some tasks, but it's kind of, the, there's a million ways to do it and you can mess up the whole place. And it's just good fun. So kind of games should be really about having fun. And uh, a lot of them achieve that quite nicely. Yeah. Do, have you played Minecraft before? Well, I got dragged in by my kids. So, yeah. <laughs> but Minecraft, by, by, for example, is also very interesting in terms of kind of when we talked about visual fidelity. I guess someone looking at Minecraft initially is like, well, like, how can you play this? This looks like ugly. I know they're now doing a lot with RTX and yeah. kind of shading and everything as well. But kind of the, the, the core concept obviously doesn't, doesn't look that great, but it just shows that a good game, it's not all about the looks. It's not about being photorealistic. It's about the idea behind the game. I remember when my kids downloaded Roblox and I just, I mean, Minecraft and Roblox to a certain extent, but Minecraft specifically. And I was like, this graphics looks like it's from, it's from when I was a kid. They loved it. So like, to your point, like if the gameplay is good, the gameplay is good. Well, when it's not games, it sounds like you, you quite out in outdoorsman, like you like a lot of sports. What do you do away? What do you do for fun? That's not games. Well, I think there's probably a question. What did did I do for fun before Corona? <laughs> like, but hopefully that's that's over soon as yeah. well. Well, I definitely like trying uh, different sports. Um, uh, it's like kind of, I do uh, indoor wind tunnel flying, uh, which I started about two years ago. I've seen that. Um, you, wear, you wear the suit? Yeah. Is it the yeah, suit? Yeah, you wear the like, suit like... and you, you can do flips and turns and go upside down. It's just amazing. It's like, 
jumping out of a plane sounds a bit scary, but being in this wind tunnel is just just uh, amazing. And uh, when my little daughter started um, ice figure skating, I sort of started as well. So oh yeah, um, I'm now a kind of junior trainer in this, uh, which is, causes some amusement with my especially male friends. No, uh, they they always have this blades of glory picture. I think. <laughs> <laughs> they're picturing you in that like uh, the tight uniform. That's what they're doing. They're dogging on you, man. You gotta tell them no, nah. no. Nah, listen, I rem- my my son's an ice hockey player, and I remember the uh, the person that t- teaches the power skating is a figure skater too. And they've they she challenged them all the boys to like a test, like my figure skaters versus your boys on this like track uh, or a course. And now the figure skating is no joke, no joke about it at all. And your friends are dogging you. Why are they calling you a? Uh, they're calling you out, trying to make you look like Will Ferrell, huh? <laughs> I have no problem. <laughs> well, you mentioned coronavirus, you know, the lockdowns, the lack of travel. That's something that we've been asking a lot of our guests, which is when the lockdowns are over and air, more air travel. Air travel seems to be picking up already. More countries are interested in like, you know, more people are, I guess, itching, really itching to go go places. How about yourself? Is there anywhere specifically you'd like to go visit when uh, when you feel everything's okay? Well, I, I, I recently, I, I mean, living in Munich, it's quite close to the Alps anyway, but kind of when I was a kid, as I mentioned, my, my dad was a pilot, so we always flew to exotic places. Yeah. But I, I recently really kind of enjoyed going into the mountains and enjoyed the nature there. And uh, especially during summertime, it's not too hot and you can uh, there's just an abundance of activities you can do there. So this is something I'm really looking forward to. There you go. Well, Mark. It's been awesome having you on the show. Thanks for sharing a little bit about your career. I mean, what you do is absolutely fascinating. And uh, I think our audience is going to really enjoy hearing about it. Excellent. Thank you very much, Albert. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.